Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Glenn Packiam and Daniel Grothy. Guys, I want to talk today about discipleship, big, large category, possibly a little bit unwieldy, but let's just define it as real quickly the process of helping people become full-fledged, mature followers of Jesus. We can go beyond that, but I think that's a good starting point. Now, on the face of it, this would seem to be a challenge mainly for big churches. New Life, for instance, is the size of the town I grew up in, Marshfield, Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how the heck do you disciple Marshfield, Wisconsin, right? Go figure that out. But actually, having been both in large churches and in smaller churches, I think at the moment your church outgrows the living room, the intimacy of the living room, you're right on the front door of the pastoral challenge. So let's talk for a few minutes today. Let's just start here. Like how, I've got a working definition here, but how do you define discipleship or think about discipleship? What are the critical elements of discipleship? Well, before we get to that, Andrew, I mean, I I would say even in the living room, you said when your church outgrows it, but I would say even in that small group setting, discipleship is a challenge. I mean, we often forget just how unready or undiscipled the first disciples were, you know? I mean, one of them betrays him, the other denies him, they all fled at the cross. I mean, these are not fully mature followers of Jesus, despite three years with Jesus. So there is some sense in which (laughs) patience is required here and uh, modified expectations, maybe. And remembering that we are right there with them. Right, yes. (laughs) Yes. That there are no professionals. Yep. So when we talk about discipleship, helping people rise up, though, as disciples, what, what are we talking about? Like when you guys in your work as pastors... What are you hoping? I mean, I don't want to get too uh, non-biblical here, but like, what are the deliverables? What are you looking for in terms of, oh, okay, I know I can see that this person is growing. What are we looking for? What I love about pastoral ministry is you're signing up for the long haul with people. Yeah. And I look back over 10 years with people I used to meet with 10 years ago who were rough around the edges. And I look up two years after that and they were getting clearer and they were praying more and they were self-sacrificing and their marriages were getting tighter and their children. And and to look up 10 years later, there are people that come to mind right now who 10 years ago, I thought, are you serious? And could this ever, could this person ever be rescued? And many of them are walking faithfully with Jesus. And so to me, to become cruciform, to become Mm. in the shape of the one who spread out his arms on a tree. Uh, to me, you know you're becoming a disciple when you're learning to lay down your life and where stuff is falling off of you, you can't take much up the hill with you to die. And so stuff falling off on the journey to be like Jesus, cruciform. I love that. We, it's like we learn to live in the pattern of the Jesus story. Glenn, would you add any wrinkles to that? How do you think uh, well, about well, it? Well, I mean, I think Daniel said it. That's exactly it. When you become mature when your life begins to resemble Christ. And there is something beautiful you can see. You know, I was joking about the first disciples, but there is something beautiful you can detect even in the New Testament in the way Peter changes, the, you know, the way he's interacting. And you, the, the Peter that's writing the epistles is different than the Peter that we meet in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts. And so there is this journey toward embracing the cruciform life. Of course, Paul talks about fruit of the Spirit, marks of this life. It looks like love. It looks like joy. It looks like peace. It looks like patience. And so that's the bullseye. So how does this, when you think about, Daniel, you talked about some of the people that you've watched 
where all of a sudden marriage starts working and family starts working and things start coming together. They learn to shed things that are not the Jesus story in their lives and embrace that. How does that happen? Painfully slowly. Yeah. <laughs> it happens over conversations. It happens over meals. I remember sitting outside of a Starbucks in my old 2007 Honda Accord, little purple Honda Accord with a guy who showed up at the church 11 years ago. He was rough and just came off a very difficult situation and moved to Colorado Springs not knowing anyone. And I met him at church and I said, hey, let's get lunch this week. And to now look up these 11 years later, the man is absolutely thriving. And there were so many stops and starts. There were so many times where we were rejoicing and, man, high-fiving, and we memorized passages of Scripture together. And then there are times where there was disappointment and failure and uh, calling each other out on the carpet. And so to me, that's why you have to pace yourself. A long obedience in the same direction is Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship. And uh, if you're ready to get everything fixed in the next six weeks, you're going to be very disappointed in the life of discipleship. Exactly right. And because it's such a long journey or long process, there is kind of to work with that gardening metaphor. There's a soil issue. There's a seed issue. I mean, we have to think about all of the conditions, the community. Maybe one of the things we've gotten wrong in the American paradigm is we've made this a solo project. Yeah. And so discipleship is a do-it-yourself kind of thing. And it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, you were describing that story, Daniel. I was thinking some of my most memorable experiences of walking with people have come by just saying... Let's pray together once a week, and let's read the scripture out loud together. And so we would meet. I think of a young man. He's in our church right now. He's a, he's married. He's got kids, and they've weathered a lot of storms and continue to. But when I knew him over a decade ago, it was a difficult time in his life as a single young man. And we'd meet every week, and we'd just open a passage of scripture together, read it out loud to one another, pray in our lives, and so. That's a bit of the seed and the soil, the seed being the Word of God and the soil being the community, the relationships around us. I think if you pay attention to what Jesus was doing, he was always telling people, come and follow me, which means it has to be relational. It has to be walking down the roads of our lives. It, it just happens as we get together. And Paul says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think for all of us, there is this element. I, I remember a pastor telling me when I was a kid, never go anywhere alone. Always take someone with you. And so when I'm doing a hospital visit, if I can take someone with me, I'm going to do it. Because what I know is for the 30-minute drive there and the 30-minute drive back, we're going to be talking. That We're going to be talking in the hospital. We're going we're gonna to be putting ourselves in spots to develop these disciplines. And so this come and follow me thing that Jesus instituted, I think still remains our call as the people of God. I totally agree. However, there are a thousand people that come to the Friday night community. They're part of that community. And, you know, 1,200 or so are part of downtown. You can't yep. have everybody follow you and they don't all get proximity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in my years as a pastor, I feel that acutely. And one of the things I always think about is, I can't call everybody into the depths of my life, but one of the things that I can do as a pastor, maybe my principal task, is to help create the right kinds of conditions and environments where the Spirit can do what the Spirit characteristically does. And I I do always think about, uh, I think you drew attention to it a little bit ago, Glenn, kind of the seed in the soil. Jesus tells a great parable, Mark chapter 4, where he says the sower, the farmer goes out to scatter the seed, 
And then he says, whether he sleeps or gets up, day and night, the seed grows and sprouts by itself. And the Greek word there is automate, automatically. It's as though he doesn't know how. So there's this like inscrutable element. He had the field and the seed. And so he created some conditions. But then there is this gap yeah. of a mystery where God does what God wants to do. So what then is our responsibility as leaders in the church? How do we create the right kinds of conditions and environments? How are you all wrestling with that? That is the question. I mean, that is maybe the chief task that we're stewarding here. And I think of Ephesians 4 a lot, you know, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, given for the work of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so at some point, again, whether that's 12 people or 2,000 people or whatever, at some point, all of us as pastors have to think about how we're multiplying our ministry. And I don't mean multiplying in like the American business use of that word or multi-level or pyramid schemes or whatever, but I mean genuine multiplication where we're saying, okay, part of creating the conditions for growth means investing in people who will then become disciple makers. So in a sense, and lots of people have said it this way, the goal is not just to make disciples, but to make disciple makers. That's right. And so what am I doing to sort of help leaders develop here and help others arise who will then begin to take ownership of their friendships and their neighbors and their small group and all of that? I think environments is a right word for this. I'm thinking of little seed beds. Yeah. Creating multiple different seed beds for life to happen. And so I think about our staff. We meet every week and we pray and we talk to each other. And so that's a concentric circle. I think probably the smaller one is my little family. Yeah, I've got three little kids and my bride. And if I can't make disciples at home, I have no business going outside of the home. <laughs> mm-hmm. So starting with your smallest concentric circle and working outward in our areas of responsibility. And so it's different settings. We've got our staff. We've got our leadership team that leads the Friday night congregation. A disproportionate amount of our energy is going there. Why? Because those hundred people are the ones who are leading elsewhere. So they're the ones who are pastoring our congregation. It's our home group leaders, investing in them and praying with them and showing them the way, encouraging them, living life with them, knowing that they're the ones pastoring the people who come to their homes. It's the men's meeting that happens the third Wednesday of every month at 6.30 in the morning. It's a group of 35 to 50 men. And it's the same guys who keep coming. And I want to look up in two years and see, we got 24 meetings under our belt with these guys and they are not where they were when we started. So you got to approach it in a layered approach, different seed beds. I love that. That's absolutely wonderful. It makes me think about, you know, every church, whether they're aware of it or not, has a way of talking about this, that it's different kinds of environments and different kinds of activities are part of how we help people rise up into the fullness of life in Christ. At New Life, we talk about worship, connect, and serve, which is a great way of talking about it. We have worshiping environments. We have environments that are more relational kind of in their texture and then serving environments, you know, where we're calling one another together. I, you know, one of the things that I remember is 12 to let's say 15 years ago, there was sort of this resurgence, a new resurgence of talk around discipleship. And I heard people say a lot during that time, you know, worship services never change people's lives on the level of discipleship. Of course we do them, but really discipleship happens elsewhere. But I'm not so sure that's true. When you guys think about the role of the worship service, worship and preaching in terms of people's discipleship, where does that fit in your minds? How do you think about that in terms of its strategic kind of impact in people's I, lives? I love that you named those three environments or those spaces or named it that way, worship spaces, connecting spaces, serving spaces. 
they're all, all three of them are formative spaces. All three of those places have the potential to shape and form a person. And if we don't think about that, then we actually won't leverage their power to do so or, or you know, take advantage of their capacity to do so. So a worship space specifically, because that's usually the one we kind of ignore. We, we all know if you serve together, you'll grow, and we all know if you connect. But worship spaces are are huge because not only through the songs and through the sermons, and we've said this before on this podcast, but through the shape of the whole service. Mm-hmm. Does the service itself tell a narrative? Can the service itself be cruciform? Yep. Mm-hmm. Does the service itself have a death and resurrection kind of moment? And, and what I mean by that is, what's the death moment? The death moment is the confession moment, is the mm-hmm. God help mm-hmm. moment, and resurrection is, and here is the grace of God, and here is the provision of the presence of God, all of that stuff. So I think it is important to think about our worship services that way, but not just in the individual services, but even in the picture of our services altogether. So for us downtown, that's one of the merits of following the church calendar is because now we're sort of saying, okay, we're going to go on journeys together. And so this is a season where we are entering the humility of Lent and the repentance of the season. Now we are entering the season of feasting with Eastertide. And so everything about our worship space is being shaped by the conviction that this has the power to form people. I think the corporate worship gatherings absolutely are a part of discipleship. And especially in the American sort of consumer culture that we live in, it's never been easier to show up to church and hide. Yeah. Like we think we can just come into church and hear a good inspiring talk on Jesus for 30 minutes and then go to our cars and work it out this week ourselves. But as the leader of a congregation, I'm always thinking about how am I going to lead this next 90 minutes in a way that makes people bump into each other in ways that make discipleship possible. So if someone comes to the church and they haven't had the chance to lay hands on someone and pray over them, that's an issue. If someone comes to the church and doesn't have an opportunity to worship the Lord with their giving, that's an issue because you want to talk turkey, you want to like become a disciple. It starts with your pocketbook very often. And it's easy to say, I love the Lord, my God, with all of my heart and all my soul. But what about my strength? Yes. And when you stand up each week and invite people to give and to take care of each other as a community, it's very much a discipleship issue. I think about lifting hands and kneeling in corporate worship. James Smith, Jamie Smith talks about getting the gospel story into our bodies. Yes. And corporate worship is a way where when you lift your hands, you're saying, I am free from the chains that used to bind me. When you kneel, you're humbling yourself. So I think anyone who says that uh, corporate gatherings don't matter for discipleship, you're missing out on a lot of opportunities to create disciples. Because actually you are making them a disciple of something, right? Right. And if you just say, well, once we get them to a small group, that's when the real work begins. But you're already now working uphill because in your worship services, you've fed them the gospel of consumerism. You've taught them to be an audience. You've taught them to be a critic. You've taught them to be whatever it is. And so you have discipled them, but you've discipled them in the wrong way. way. And then when you do get them in a small group, now you've got even more problems than you might have if you hadn't thought this comprehensively. And part of the problem too is that we've thought about worship instrumentally or worship services instrumentally. So we've only thought about it as what purpose does this serve in doing doing something else. So how does this make people better disciples? When the truth is that if we're thinking eschatologically here, the end of the story is that we are gathered up as a new humanity in the presence of God in worship and adoration. So the act of being in corporate space together, hearing the word of God and responding to the word of God, loving on one another, lifting up our hearts in worship, that is part of our discipleship. And so that environment is a really critical environment, I think. And it's not just 
critical instrumentally, right. but it's critical as an end. Right. Here we are together, a glimpse of the world to come. And if we don't know what to do here or how to be here as the people of God, not just as a individual disciples who have gathered together for a weekly discipleship conference, we're just, we're missing it if we don't see that, you know? So just to piggyback off of that a little bit and get even more specific, what's the role of preaching in discipleship? How do you use the preaching moment to be one of the chief disciple makers of your community? It's the proclamation of the word of God, number one. I mean, it is the place where the gospel is proclaimed, and so people have to hear it over and over again. We all have to hear it over and over again. But I also think the way we handle the text is discipling people in how to handle the text. So if we just cherry pick a verse or two and then run off to our favorite topic, people will open up their Bibles on Monday morning if they do, and we're lucky if they do. Fortune cookie. Right, and look for that nugget. Look for that one little thing and then quickly be disappointed when it's not there. And so again, preaching is both the content and the the way it's being delivered are both ways that we are shaping people. Preaching matters for discipleship, in my estimation, at least for two reasons. One, Jesus did it. Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of God from town to town, village to village, and people are chasing him down, and he's sitting in houses, and people are breaking the roof open just to hear what he's saying. Jesus is out preaching. He's telling stories. He's proclaiming. He's calling people to take up their cross and deny themselves and follow him. Jesus wasn't just going around sprinkling fairy dust that turned people into disciples. He was talking to them about the life they had chosen to live and telling them why it was always going to be a shell of the life that they could live. And so he's preaching and inviting them in. So one, Jesus did it, but the the second reason is because he commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, making disciples, baptizing. And so this is a part of our task. Essentially what we're doing is we're going about challenging people's assumptions of what the good life is and showing them a different way. So I think preaching absolutely matters for making disciples. Okay. Now I want to ask you guys a question, Andrew and Daniel. We talked a little bit up front about the relational aspects of this, and the, you know, there's not a way to kind of script this out. And, you know, I want us to return to the good of a intentional structure as well. But let's just talk about the perils of the relational thing, okay? We all know someone who at some point was in a Bible study, and this person said, let me disciple you, brother or sister, whatever, and took that as the opportunity to impose on them all of their own preferences, all of their own sort of culturally acquired habits. How do you avoid that pitfall so that someone's not actually just being controlled by another person. Is the goal for them to look like me or is the goal for them to look like Jesus? Yes. And so you just got to know what is preferential, what is just, you know, something you like and what is the essential work? What is the essential story? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus in a way that transcends culture? It transcends time. Like you are praying more because you're becoming a disciple. You are fellowshipping with brothers and sisters more because you're becoming a disciple. You're a good neighbor because you're becoming a disciple. So if it's cultural, that may or may not be discipleship. But if it looks like the kingdom of God, like our brothers and sisters scattered to the four winds for the last 2000 years, then it might be discipleship. And does it lead to more freedom? I heard somebody say recently, and I totally agree with this, that a true spiritual father or mother you're not going to become a clone of them, but you'll actually be liberated to be more yourself than you ever were. So I I think that's a huge telltale sign is this 
the discipleship to Jesus or is it a discipleship to me? But also, Glenn, you know, it makes me think about when I was in seminary, how many discipleship books I read that were so very programmatic. And so it was, you know, hey, Jesus' model was he had the three, his inner circle, and then the 12 and the 72 beyond that. And so everybody, if discipleship culture is going to work in our churches, then everybody needs to have three and 12 and 72. And I remember an epiphanal moment for me was realizing that when I read the rest of the New Testament, in particular the epistles, you just don't see it. So if that had been Jesus' preferred method that he wanted to pass on to his apostles, he sure did a bad job of instilling it in them because they don't, in the epistles, they don't go around saying, so guys, remember the three and the 12 and the seven, they don't say that. What they talk to is they talk to the reality of the whole people of God together. And they assume, this is how I would read it, that it's the living Christ himself who's discipling all of them together through all of the instantiations of the church's life. So as they're serving together and loving one another and being for each other and hearing the word and da-da-da, Jesus is still present with them, still doing his inscrutable work. And it's never in the New Testament reduced to a program. So I'm always so skeptical yeah. of that whole here, come along side by me and learn from me. I go, oh, go, 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 go. Right. <laughs> Are we remembering that it's the church together that does this and Jesus operating through his church? Or are we trying to replicate something that maybe we shouldn't be replicating? So good. N.T. Wright has talked about how even in Paul's letters, he doesn't answer every possible question or address every possible situation that could arise. Instead, he's trying to help them think in a new way, work this out, think this through, you know, work it out for yourself. I also think of a friend who, who talked about mentoring and said, instead of looking for one North Star, you ought to have a bit of a constellation yeah. of voices, you know. And again, we keep being driven back to a community approach here. So we are cultivating the conditions in a community where discipleship is possible. One more question. Talk to me about when a program is useful, a class or a course or something, because I know in some contexts, ours included, we can be so organic that actually we're not intentional. Yeah, I think a track can help, but it's always got to serve the larger purpose rather than be the end in itself. And so it is difficult when people get together in the name of Jesus, but they don't know what to do. And so I think it's it's just give people railroad tracks to run on so that you're headed in the right direction. But you always got to be able to call an audible and respond to what the Spirit is doing. And so for our home group leaders, we've given them three things they need to do. One, you got to get together. That's important. You're going to eat food when you get together. (laughs) You're going to read scripture when you get together and you're going to pray for each other. Those are the things. Get together, eat food, read scripture and pray. Beyond that, it's the Spirit's work and it's going to be responsive to what's actually happening in their lives. So there are great book studies. Fantastic. I've taken people through Eugene Peterson books and, and done all kinds of different things through the years. But when the goal is the program itself. Yeah, that's right. I think we get the cart before the horse. I think Alpha is a great expression of this. Alpha, it's specific and it's limited and it's trying to get you into the whole church. So Alpha is not an end in itself. Alpha is an open door to come into the fullness of Christ's church. That to me is the role of the program. The program is, is it specific? Is it limited? And does it put us into the wide open space of the church. And we got to be careful to not enshrine these things. Like we will ever and always do these programs. Well, maybe, maybe not, you know? And so we love Alpha downtown. We're doing that. We also just started doing the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, which we absolutely love. But these are tools. These are things that help us toward the goal. They are not the goal in and of themselves. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. 
Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.